Hello, beautiful people. Your resident true crime loving black girl, Carol here. Before being in the show, I just wanted to take a brief moment to acknowledge something. While the events of this movie are true, the names were changed, and upon editing this episode, I noticed that I didn't mention the name of the subject of the film until it was closer to the end, and I want to rectify that. Regina Kelly is a name that the character D. Roberts was based on. It is a name that should be said, a name that should be heard, and a name that deserves to be remembered. So, Regina Kelly, Regina Kelly, Regina Kelly. Now, on to the show. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to Black Girls Talk True Crime, where we discuss true crime movies and the people, places, and events they were based on. My name is Carol, your resident true crime-loving Black girl, and I'm here with my sister, Alex. Say hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Today, we're going to be discussing something I'm very excited about. It is the movie American Violet. And I'm going to talk to you really briefly about why I happened to choose this film. As you know, I am a true crime lover. I love to devour true crime, you know, novels and documentaries and specials, and I listen to many, many true crime podcasts as well. And the thing that's unfortunate that I kind of noticed amongst all of these things is that there doesn't seem to be as much of an emphasis on marginalized communities as there should be, particularly since it affects, you know, marginalized communities a lot more. So I do want to do my small part to kind of give a voice to these stories. So that's kind of what led me to American Violet. It was something I actually hadn't seen before. I was kind of sort of familiar with it. You know, since it was my choice, I just decided to give it a shot. I know it's a little outside of the box, but, you know, that's what we're here to do. We're here to explore different themes in terms of true crime. It's not always about, you know, spouse killing spouse kind of thing, which is interesting sometimes, but there's so many different layers. True crime is just a complex subject and there's so many different avenues that we can kind of explore, so many facets. So that's kind of why I chose this film. And Alex, what was your, you know, familiarity with this film, if anything at all? Well, I wasn't familiar with the film at all until you suggested it. And after watching it, I thought it was a pretty good film. That's awesome. I actually enjoyed this film as well. You know, we can talk a little bit about that a little bit later, but, you know, it was a really, really good film. And I'm glad that it was a story that was told. I think it's very important. We kind of open up with establishing shots of the city and it kind of lets you know what kind of town we're in. We see a prison. We see like it seems to be sort of industrial, kind of sort of blue collar. It's definitely not or definitely does not scream affluence at all. It tells us a little bit about what we're kind of in for, what sort of people we're going to be meeting. And our main character, Dee, she is getting ready in the morning. She has four children. Sharice, Sharonda, Laisha, and Tanya. And she's, you know, she's just a typical single mom kind of getting her kids ready, you know, feeding them breakfast. She's over there watering her violet. And that kind of is intercut with scenes of police officers. They're doing, you know, Dee's kind of doing this sort of lovely, nurturing morning routine. And you got these cops just kind of 
loading their guns, ammo. You're like, whoa, there's something really serious going down here, right? They're about to take down some kind of, I don't know, some kingpin or some, uh, you know, international drug lord, right? Because we got guns on top of guns. We got all this ammo. We've got like a horde of police officers. So something clearly big is going down, right? Right. No, (laughs) no, 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 not at all. We see, uh, like I said, a whole bunch of police officers. They're they're like two large trucks worth of police officers. And we see this someone where later kind of uh, is serves as a central figure in the film. Calvin Beckett, he meets with cops and he's talking to them about a list of 28 names. We're later going to find out what these 28 names and what that list means. But he's kind of a very important person in this film. So the girls are going to their grandmother's house now. And we still see the fleet. The, and there are also helicopters. So this is a lot going on, right? I forgot to mention that this is about November 2000. And in the background throughout the film, you see them talking about the Bush-Gore election and the results. So it's kind of giving you a time frame. And this happens in Melody, Texas. So we see Dee driving to work and turns out she works at a diner. It becomes clear that she is a beloved worker. Yeah, she seems to have a good rapport with her customers. You know, she seems to care about, you know, what they're going through, what's going on. And we also learn a little bit more about her. You know, this is kind of a little bit of exposition here. We learn that she's, you know, trying to go to junior college. She's interested in signing up for a hair show because there's a grand prize of $5,000. So this is just a little window into Dee's life. So the kids are at grandma's house, watching TV, coloring, and doing what kids do. So Sharice asks her grandmother if she can go visit a friend, and her grandmother gives her permission. And her grandmother tells her to bring with her her good bowl, um, a bowl that she actually got from her grandmother. And little girl starts to make her way across the courtyard when the police raid the apartment complex. In the midst of all that, you know, the little girl, she's making her way across the courtyard. She becomes frozen in fear. She is in the middle of the courtyard. And her grandmother hears the commotion, tells the other kids to remain put, and she runs outside to protect her granddaughter. Like, there are dozens of police officers kind of pointing guns at, like, you know, a bunch of unarmed men. They're, like, bringing them these unarmed men to their knees as they, you know, kind of point these guns at them. They're taking these battering rams and, like, busting these doors down to try to uh, find whatever criminals they're looking for. People are running. It's just a whole lot of chaos. There's a helicopter over just circling. So this Sharice is kind of in the middle of all of this. And she's just a little girl. And at one point she kind of, you know, drops the bowl, you know, because she's she doesn't know what to do. She She's completely frozen in fear. So like that's the point. As you know, at that point, that's when her grandmother comes out and, you know, tries to protect her. Meanwhile, the police continue their raid, breaking down apartment doors with their police rams, chasing individuals um, that are attempting to flee. And the next scene picks up with police officers entering the diner where Dee works, and it looks like they're going in for a meal, but they're actually going in looking for Dee herself. Yo, Dee, can I get a refill? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. D. Roberts? D. Roberts? Excuse me, you don't say what I did. What's going on? Would you tell me what I did? What's going on? What did I do? You're not D. 
I'm sorry, Governor. Parking tickets. This is ridiculous. I'll pay the parking tickets. Just back away, ma'am. I said I'll pay the parking tickets. I said step away, ma'am. They find her and place her under arrest, and she's understandably confused. Um, she's asking them what did she do, but they don't answer. She assumes that she's being arrested for the, the parking tickets that she's accumulated over time. And her boss comes out running, also understandably confused. And she she asks D, she asks the police officers what's going on. D tells her what she thinks the reason for her for, for the arrest is and the reason for the humiliation. The boss offers to pay for her parking tickets, but then she's asked to step away. One of the police officers asks her to step away. The patrons, they look on, they're confused, they're shocked. As they drive off, we see a poster that says reelect Beckett for DA with his picture. I didn't realize it was actually him in the dress pants in the beginning speaking to the unit commander. And it's him in the helicopter signaling to the pilot to head back because he has his 28. Okay, so we we learn just how powerful a figure this Calvin Beckett is throughout the film because, and they kind of also mention this, you know, allude to this in the film. You know, in a big town, a district attorney is just kind of like another sort of cog in the wheel. But in a small town like Melody, he is the law. He is the order. Like he is kind of everything. And we see that throughout the film, like he is basically the big man in charge. Now we're with Sam Conroy. They kind of introduce his character very, very briefly. He's at target practice with a bunch of guys. And they're, these are the cops, some of the cops that we saw raiding the complex earlier. And they're just laughing and saying that, you know, they were running like cockroaches from a burning torch. So this is kind of like old hat for these guys. This is you know, not a big deal. Like they don't even see these people as humans. They're kind of equating them to cockroaches. So you already know what frame of mind these people are in, these police officers, and you already know what they think of these, you know, Black people that they're basically arresting. These sort of arrests, these raids are something that is ever present in the town of Melody. This is something that is constantly going on. So they've completely dehumanized the residents, the Black residents, and Melody. So now we're with Dee again. She's in county lockup, and she's speaking to her mom on the phone. And I noticed that they seem to have, based upon the, you know, the interactions that we've seen, they have a good relationship. You know, I kind of gather that her mom was a single mom just like her, and she kind of, they kind of sort of like grew up together in a way. It seems to be just the two of them. I don't see any other siblings, or at least none were mentioned. So they were kind of all each other had. So she's telling her mother that she's been arrested. No one told her what she was arrested for. So she's just kind of filling in the blanks on her own. Hey, mama. Hi. How you doing? I'm fine. How the girls? You know, the rage scared them, but they all right. D, you ain't done nothing to get all caught up in this mess, hey? I mean, somebody said that they was looking for you. Mama, you know, I don't have nothing to do with that. I know that. I know. It's my parking tickets. I got, um, $782. $782? Good Lord! Girl! Chill, you can buy a car for that much money. I know, Mama. 
I'm sorry. Well, I'm scared now. Can you help me out of here? I'll pay you back, I promise. When are you seeing the judge? Tomorrow morning. Tomorrow. I'll find it, I guess, you know. Thank you, Mama. Oh. Um, tell the girls that I will be there tomorrow. I love you. I love you. Don't worry, girl. And she assumes that it's these parking tickets, like Alex has said, she assumes that it's these parking tickets that she has accumulated. And, you know, to the tune of $782. So she tells her mom, hey, can you can you help me? I'll pay you back. And so her mom agrees to pay the parking tickets. Not that she has the money. You know, we see that these people are not people of means. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have disposable income. So her mother's going to do whatever she wants to do or whatever she has to do, rather, to get the money. She seems to be a, a really good mom. I do take major, 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 major issue with her later on in the film. And we'll get to that when we get to that. However, at this point, I'm like, man, this is a really, really good mom. We're at the Harmon County Courthouse. And this is where Dee goes, where she presumes that she's going to answer for her parking tickets. And she is in for a rude awakening. She basically has been told that she's being arrested for distributing narcotics in a school zone and that her bail is going to be set at $70,000. She's appointed a, you know, court appointed attorney by the name of Mr. Higgins, who, you know, right before that, there was another defendant. He was appointed to the same attorney. So it's like they are just, I guess that's kind of how this thing works. It's just one, you know, or two or a few court appointed attorneys and they just kind of have this sort of mountain of work. So that's kind of what I was thinking. I'm like, there's no way that these attorneys can care about these people. There's no way because they're just, they're just files to these people. You know what I mean? They're just a case after case after case. They just kind of turn them in, turn them out, turn them in, turn them out. Obviously, D does not have $70,000. You know, the guy before her, he also had $70,000 bail. So they're just treating these people like they're one in the same, right? So she's basically told, because remember, this is November. And she's basically being told that she's going to have a preliminary hearing in March, you know, March 23rd. So she's going to have to wait quite a bit to kind of, you know, have her day in court. We also meet Daryl, played by Exhibit. <laughs> and he is the father of two of these children. He's trash by the way. So he comes and gets the girls from, you know, their grandmother. Her I keep saying their grandmother. Her name is Alma, by the way. But she, he comes and get this, gets the girls from Alma. Dee, who is, uh, well, this next scene picks up with Dee, who is now in jail attire. She meets with her court-appointed attorney, David Higgins, and the assistant DA, Robert Foster. And the ADA tells her that she's been indicted by a grand jury as a drug dealer, and that the DA has been gathering evidence against her for months, and they, that they have a very strong case. She begins defending herself, but her attorney advises her against speaking. It's not just that. I did not like, they were very dismissive towards her, right? Like, he was just like, I advise you to be silent. Like, what? Like, it's just like, she is, she's being thrown to the wolves here. She's She's never been in these sort of circumstances. She's afraid. She's concerned for her children. She doesn't know what's going on. And like she, they treat her like she's she's not even a, like a a human. Like they treat her like she's just she's just another common criminal. 
Right. Yeah. So I really wasn't sure on what side of the fence that David Higgins was on. And we find that later he appears um, at one point to defend her by asking the assistant attorney, well, if she was caught with any drugs at her house, um, at her workplace, has anyone caught her doing drugs? And the ADA, the ADA answers no to all the questions. Also, if she has a record of being a drug dealer. And again, the ADA answers no. The ADA reminds her attorney of the evidence that the DA has has against her and insists that if he saw it, he'd be convinced of her guilt as well. David learns that she has four kids and then he asks to speak to the DA, the assistant DA in private. Ms. Roberts, you have a very talented lawyer. And against my better judgment, he has convinced me to offer you a plea bargain. Ms. Roberts, despite what Mr. Foster believes to be the strength of his case, because your record is relatively clean and due to the nature... And because of, of the age and the needs of your children... He's prepared to offer you a plea. If you plead guilty to felony possession with intent to distribute, you can go home today with a 10-year suspended sentence and a small fine. But I never sold any drugs. Then post bail, we'll set a court date. $70,000. Or you can stay in jail and await your pretrial hearing in, uh, in March. That's almost six months. I can't do that. I mean, what am I going to do about my kids? I'm sorry the burden your behavior has imposed on your children, Miss Roberts. That is why I'm prepared to offer you a plea. But be under no doubt. If you don't take the plea, we will prosecute you to the fullest extent of the law. Goodbye, David. What's he mean by the fullest extent of the law? 16 to 25 years. I know, this is a very precarious situation. I can't imagine being faced with something like this. Admit to doing something that you didn't do for a guaranteed, you know, your guaranteed freedom, essentially, more or less, or buck the system and kind of take your chances with a system that you know is a is against you for a number of reasons. Not only are you black, but you're poor, and you've been assigned an attorney who, uh, a, you know, attorney who really clearly doesn't give two craps about you. So the fact that she isn't buckling or isn't folding immediately that tells me she's a strong woman. Like we already knew that she had a lot of strength because she's already she's a single mother with four children. You know, she's only twenty four years old, mind you. So. We already know that about her, but the fact that she, because I'm going to be honest, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> if I were in her situation, I kept asking myself, what would I have done? I don't think that I would have like had the balls to do what she did. And they say that you never know the stuff that you're made of until you're faced with this situation. But I don't know, guys. I don't know if I could have done what she did. At this point, she's being told that her her hearing is going to be March 23rd. She goes back to her cell. And this is a cell, by the way, that she shares with three other women, including Gladys. And Gladys is a woman that we met earlier in the in the in the film. And she lives in her in the same complex as, as her. So imagine sharing what appears to be a, this is like an eight by ten cell. And you're sharing it with three other women. It's the four of you. So when I say like they're treating these women, men and women like inhumanely and like subjecting them to these substandard conditions, it's not an exaggeration. And that's when the women tell her, look, if you accept this plea, 
That means basically you are a felon. If you're a felon, that means you can't have your welfare. You can't have your Medicaid. You can't have food stamps. You won't be able to vote. And you can't like you can't live in government housing. And many of these women, they're they fall under all these categories. So you're screwed if you do. You're screwed if you don't, essentially. Right. Like what choice is this really? So Alma is, she's going to church. So we learn like, a little bit more about Alma. She's a church-going woman. And she goes to Daryl's house where, like I said, he only he only shares two children with Dee. So he, she, or Alma rather, she comes to pick up the girls. And the youngest girl, she has like a filthy, dirty diaper. We also meet his girlfriend. And she is like a bottom of the barrel human being, by the way. And we're going to learn a little bit more about her as we go on. You know, basically, she's like, you know, almost like, hey, why is her diaper so dirty? And she's bottom of the barrel human being is basically like, look, if it bothers you, you change it. All right. Like, who does that? Anyway, so we're at the church. This is after Sunday service. Um, and Sharice is kind of getting into a fight with the little girl named Chantrell. And Chantrell is basically making fun of her her mother and their situation. So Sharice is not here for it. She's like, look, don't you talk about my mother, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, she called her a drug dealer. And that's when Reverend Sanders played by the great Charles S. Dutton. By the way, I don't understand why he agreed to do this film. He is severely and criminally underutilized in this film. Like he, I don't know if he was doing a favor for a friend. I don't know if he had a lot of scenes that were later cut out, but for such a huge talent, he was barely in the film. I was really disappointed because I was expecting him to be a greater presence. He tries to make peace between the girls and Sharice is not having it. And you know what, frankly, I don't blame her. You're not going to talk about my mama and then tell me to like shake hands and turn the other cheek with this person. At least not right away. I'm not here for it. So we're back at the prison with the visit. When Dee's getting ready to visit with her kids. Now, I don't... Well, maybe, okay, maybe I'm spoiled by watching movies and uh cop mm-hmm. shows but the way her visit was done was just yes. so weird it was the first right? time that i've ever seen that she had I a visit f- through a wind well i'm sorry not a window through a square it was like you guys it's like this big look like an iron door right a dirty I dingy she iron was actually door. in solitaire or something like that Yo, I've never seen anything like it. I'm guessing it's true to true to life and that's why they used it but i didn't even know such a thing existed that's insane. Yeah, that makes no sense. It was bad enough where people had to talk through the through the uh, the plexiglass, but talking through a door that has like a what size is it like like a five by five window. That's and I'm like, makes the no little sense. kids they can't it can barely see. You got to lift the little kids to see the 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 the, the, the panel. That's like come yeah. on. That's the first time I ever seen that before. Well, anyway, I think this is the part where you begin to not like her mom. During the visit, her mom suggests that she actually take the play. And she's like, that's not when the part where I don't, that's not it though. But um, she's saying, you know, everybody, she's like, take the plea because everybody does it. Just take it. Like her mother is not as, know, she's so, as strong as she is. She's not a fighter mm-hmm. like me. Yeah, definitely. She's definitely not. She's someone who just wants to kind of go along to get along, you know, whereas D is kind of, She's kind of like that as well. However, she's like, look, if you mess with me, like, you get the horns. <laughs> Sorry. She actually tells her mom, her mom who's telling her to take the plea, that didn't you teach me 
that the truth shall set you free. Mm. Uh, Mother said something along the lines of the truth shall set you free, not in this world or maybe in heaven or something along those lines. She's still adamant about not taking the plea. She's still adamant about standing in her truth, pretty much. She's, she's ready to fight. I mean, I understand both sides. I understand being Alma and, you know, first off, you've got four kids that are not your own that you got to raise. You don't really have the means by which to raise them. I also understand D's side. Look, I didn't do any of this. This is not who I am as a person. I don't want my children to believe that I'm this kind of person. And I want to, you know, I don't want to be labeled as a felon because then my life is basically going to be over because I'm, you know, it's going to basically turn my life upside down. So I do understand both both sides. But, you know, this is like their visit is very brief. And towards the later part of the visit, she says she's like basically begging Alma do you know not to leave the girls alone with Claudia? Mm-hmm. Like my my interests were peaked. I was like, what does she mean by that? She was like, you know what she does to them. I'm like, do tell, do tell. I actually thought she beat them. That's what I thought she like. You know, I thought she like beat them. But um, we're, we're gonna later learn like it's worse. But then but, her um, mom uses that knowledge though to tell her to take the plea. She's like, well, if you know they're gonna end up with Claudia, you better take the plea. Yeah, her mom is, oof. I don't want to say trash, mm-mm, mm-mm, but she's, mm-mm. what's a step above that? What's two steps above that? I don't know. She's a leftovers. Piece of work. Piece of work. She's leftovers. She's something else. All right. So at this point, we see Alma and she's going to visit the judge who's overseeing the whole case. And his name is Judge Pryor. We're not privy to their kind of interactions, but we later learn based upon the discussions that she had with Judge Pryor, that he agrees to lower the bail if enough people sign a petition. And the petition was say that they, they've they never seen D selling drugs or doing drugs. So if enough people sign it, then she could essentially have her bail lowered. So that's what Alma's kind of doing. She's kind of making her rounds, you know, to the hair shop and, you know, other places. So, you know, and I'm back and forth with Alma. I'm like, man, she's a really good mom. She's kind of being proactive. She's talking to the judge, you know, and then a, and a few scenes later, she does something else that makes me like, ugh, Alma, Alma, Alma. So now we're at the church and we meet some pretty cool people here at the church, right? So the meeting is being held at the church to discuss the injustices that are taking place in their neighborhood, specifically the raids. The pastor, he reached out to his old friend, Joe Fisher, who reaches out to one of his friends, David Cohen, from the ACLU, who is accompanied by his associate, Byron Hill. David Cohen, um, the guy from the, the lawyer from the ACLU, he goes over and outlines a couple of points that he liked to bring to their attention, how the drug task force uses military tactics to terrorize the poor people, how the drug laws that are set in place selectively target people of color. The federal monies go to the counties that convict the most people and that plea bargains are aggressively pushed to hasten these convictions and that 95% of the cases in the country are settled by plea bargains. And for most people, the penalties of not taking the plea bargain are so frightening that they plead guilty even if they're innocent. 
So basically, like David Cohen, like all these things that he's saying, he's basically letting us know that putting it into like words, what we already know, like, you know what I mean? He's saying to us, this basically system is set up to work against you in a way. If you are poor and you're black, you know, and you you live in a certain area, particularly, everything's already working against you. These people are not interested in justice. They're not interested in seeing the truth prevail. It's all about money. The convictions, like you said, yes, the convictions so that they can get the federal money. It basically boils down to money for these people. The more people they put in jail, the more people they get to take these pleas, the more money that, you know, and that that speaks to the, you know, the, the prison industrial complex as well. Like, it's all about money. Like, even like, that's why people, so many people are against privatization of prisons mm-hmm. because they don't, they're not interested in rehabilitating people. They're not interested in seeing that they reform because the more bodies they have in that jail, the more money it is. And that's a sad sad thing. You know, he's just really kind of codifying like what we already know. He had asked the question, how many people do you think take pleas? It was really a sobering, you know, sort of moment when he said 95%, not just for the people, you know, he was speaking to, but for me, because that was a shocking number. 95% of people take pleas? Can we, can we, can we talk about that? 95%? That's like almost a hundred, mm-hmm. you know? Like, whoa, you telling me that not 95% of people are guilty? No. So that means we're putting a lot of innocent people in prison. That's insane. There are a lot of concerned citizens in the, you know, in the audience, and they're expressing their concerns, you know, with David Cohen and talking about their particular, you know, experiences, you know, with the, the criminal justice system. And you Dee's know, and mom, in the, she's in the audience. She's in the in the meeting. Mm-hmm. And she hears that one of the other members had a son who was in the situation and he did what Dee is doing. He actually fought the charge or tried to fight the charge and he ended up losing. And he was asked to serve, I don't know, maybe 10 years. It, it was 15 years. Okay. As opposed was- to the plea bargain, which would have given him maybe three years. So and basically so, they're incentivizing people to plead. You telling me like, potentially innocent people, they're incentivizing them to plead. Like you're telling me if somebody's facing three years or 15 years, nine times out of 10, they're going to take three years, right? Because you're right. putting the fear of God in them. Like, hey, 15 years is all, that's a huge chunk of your life, you know, as opposed to three years. I mean, it's a long time, but it, it's nothing in comparison to, like in these instances, up to 25 years, you know? Right. And, and Alma sees that could be Dee's reality and that doesn't sit well with her. You can see it in her face. At this point, this is where we learn about the Texas law, right? And that's where the DA can indict someone on the word of a single informant. This, the, can we think about that for a second? One person, any person can just say, hey, you know, Alex, I saw just her. lie. So, yeah. They can completely make anything up, you know, and then the person gets arrested. They're forced to plead. And Reverend Sanders, he kind of he's talking to um, David Cohen, like in another scene. And he's telling them that the D.A. rules like a king there. 
you know, that's kind of what we, it's kind of showing you that earlier in the scenes, but this is him really kind of putting it into words. Like Beckett was a DA at this point for nine years. And he's saying the white people in that town vote for Beckett because he kind of keeps Puts things kind of, away, yeah. Yeah, he kind of keeps the status quo and they like that. And the black people in that town, they don't vote because either because they're just too lazy, probably even unmotivated. He didn't say that, but a lot of times people don't vote because they feel like nothing's nothing changes. And they don't vote, a lot of them, because they're felons. So think about it. They're putting all these people in prison. They become felons. These felons come out. They can't even vote. So it's kind of like this sort of circular thing. You know what I mean? So Beckett just stays and stays and stays and stays. Who's going to vote him out of office? And right. that's when he tells him, you know, he tells he tells Reverend Sanders that he needs a lead defendant. If he's going to fight this, change the system, then he needs that lead defendant, that perfect, not perfect, but sort of that really good plaintiff to kind of be the focus of this case, right? Mm-hmm. And now Dee is about to meet with her lawyer. Before she goes, she asks the officer, did you bring what I been asking for? I didn't hear that at first. It wasn't until mm-hmm. I watched it again that I actually heard what she said. And the officer replies, you too good to wide up toilet paper like everybody else? And I was like, oh my gosh, she's on her period and she's asking for paper. I mean, excuse me, she's asking for like a tampon or pad, but the officer is saying that, yo, roll up some paper. Like I, I keep like, saying, this, this goes back to like, they don't care about these people. Yeah, they like, They don't not... even treat them with any shred mm-hmm. Of dignity, any any shred of decency. You're a, and this was a woman who said that to her, by the way. Anyway, I know I'm not yeah, so lot of toilet paper. <laughs> Ew. David tells D that the DA is thinking about withdrawing her plea offer. She looks worried at first, but then tells David that she knows everything that the DA has against her is BS, and. The look that she has is saying everything without saying anything. And like I said, I was unsure of what side of the fence her lawyer was on. But after their meeting, after this meeting, I was sure. He tells her that he's learned a little bit about the case and that the DA has an informant and audio tapes of people selling him drugs. The informant claims that he bought crack from D. And that there are two police officers that say that they witnessed the whole thing. And he pulls out a tape recorder and said that's some um, pretty strong stuff, Miss Roberts. So at that moment, I knew he wasn't for D because D didn't do anything. So there couldn't be anything on that tape that would convict her, that would be against her. But like I said, she just looked at him and was like, yo, that's bullshit. He's basically essentially trying to force her to take the plea so he can basically wash his hands of her because she's just another, you know, black single mom from the, on the projects to him. You know, she's, she's a nothing client to him. We're back with David Cohen and he's talking to um, Sam Conroy about, you know, what he's basically what he's doing down there and what his interest is in the case. Then it, it's just like a real brief, brief scene. And then we go back to the prison cell and we see Gladys, Gladys, we mentioned earlier, she basically takes the plea and she tells Dee, I'm not as strong as you. I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, the person in real life that Gladys was based off of. And her name was Irma Faye Stewart. 
And in the, in, the, in the film, Gladys didn't have any children, but in real life, Emma Faye Stewart actually did have, she had two children. And she did take the plea for this exactly, it pretty much happened exactly as you saw in the film. She just, she couldn't take it anymore. She was actually sentenced to 10 years of probation and she had to pay an $1,800 fine. And she was told that she had to report to her parole officer every month. And she basically ended up destitute. She was evicted from her public housing for not paying her rent. She was not eligible for food stamps or federal grant money for education. And the two children that she had basically had to sleep at various different homes. Like they had to go bed hopping because she didn't have anywhere for them. So that's just a little kind of glimpse into the real Gladys. You know, in this film, she wasn't portrayed to have kids, though, thankfully. But sometimes when people are faced with two very difficult situations, they're going to take what at least appears to be, you know, the easier road. But in the end, we found out, like, through Gladys, when we later see her, like, kind of, you know, sleeping in her car and completely just demoralized. Yeah, we we see that, you know, this deal wasn't what she thought it was going to be. You know, we see Sam Conroy, he's at home, but we just see a little, little, little tiny glimpse into his, into his life. And he's with his his wife, Leona. He's bringing her meds. We don't know why, what she's sick or what she needs them for, but he talks to her about the case. So they seem to have a good relationship. And he's tell, he's thinking about, you know, taking the case. And, you know, it's a real sort of internal conflict for him because he has ties to the police. A lot of these people are his, you know, so-called friends and two kind of, go against him, especially in this small town. That's asking a lot, though, isn't it? Career suicide, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we see Alma, and she's at a Bell's Bonds, a Bell Bondsman's, I don't know, facility. <laughs> and she basically, this is December, so this is like the following month. And she basically gets the out of jail. She's welcomed home by her... Mm-hmm. Well, by three of her four kids, um, Sharice is not present. Um, she's the oldest and she is the one that's really dealing with her mom's situation um, in, a, in a negative way. Like it's really taking its toll on her. We already mentioned earlier how she got into a fight because one of the other kids was making fun of her and her mom's situation. And Dee goes out back. She finds... Cherise, she talks to Cherise and she tells Cherise that, look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ever going to leave you. She tries to comfort her and she does, you know, she does comfort Cherise and that conversation does give Cherise some type of comfort. Yeah. I thought that was actually a really nice moment. She's like, Hey, you know, you need some treatment (laughs) for your hair. I thought that was like a, you know, that was like a real sweet moment. If you're like a little black girl, like your mom doing your hair, that was that's that was nice. So I used to like that. Like, you know, your mom really like hook up your hair and stuff like that. You know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, she goes back home and she kind of sees like her uh her violet is dead. I don't know if that's some sort of metaphor for what her situation, but that's not a good sign. She waters it, it anyway. She waters it, it anyway. Exactly. She she was throwing out the the plants, but then when she came to the violet, she started to throw it away, but then she she second-guessed herself. She started to water it, like you said, and it's to me was like a metaphor, like I'm gonna bring you back to life. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna fix things, you know, I'm gonna make mm-hmm. it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I did see it as a metaphor. Yeah, basically kind of saying, you know, um, 
You're down, but you're not out. You mm-hmm. know, don't ever let anyone count you out. You still yeah, got some life left in you. She's not giving up, even though yeah. things look bleak. Absolutely. She's back at her old job, the diner, and she's talking to Doreen, who is her boss. And Doreen basically is, she's kind of thrown in the towel. She's saying that she just, she doesn't want to fight with the DA and that the police came back twice looking through her things for like drugs and they're questioning her about the illegals who work in her kitchen. So that's basically their way of kind of intimidating her. Basically, pretty much. They're trying to intimidate her, like saying, look, we know you got some, you know, not so, uh, you know, some things here, not on the up and up. So if you don't, you know, mind your P's and Q's and do what we we want, then, you know, we're going to make trouble for you. And she basically, she buckles. She tells D, look, I can't hire you. I, I, I just can't risk it. You know, this is my life. This is my livelihood. This is my business. I can't put that on the line for you. You know, she gives her a little bit of, you know, I guess severance pay. So she gives her a little bit extra change or like extra cash. And, you know, D takes it and, you know, she goes home. But she She's, didn't want to take it, though. She didn't want to take it. Her pride, yeah. her pride wouldn't let her take it. But exactly. I mean, the re- reality set in. She needs it. She has four kids and she is unemployed. So she should be taking it. And you saw the, the hurt and her, her pride and dignity being affected in that scene. Mm. I, I actually teared up. Wow. So we're back with uh, David Cohen and he is really trying to, you know, convince Sam Conroy to join his team. And Sam does not understand why, as a lawyer, he can't take on Beckett and the drug task force and whoever else all on his own. And David's basically telling him, look, this is a whole other ball game. I need insight into how the local justice system works. I need somebody who these juries can relate to because they see me and they see some big fancy Yankee lawyer as opposed to somebody like a hometown boy. Like they might look upon, you know, their situation, their case more favorably because, you know, I don't in my mind, like people from the South or people from small towns, they don't like these, you know, kind of outsiders. Yeah, they don't like that. That's when we learn that Sam Conroy, he's a, a drug cop for 10 years. And he trained a lot of these cops that was on the, uh, that are on the task force. And basically the case is that David is trying to make is he's trying to sue them for racial discrimination. And we're now with Reverend Sanders and Reverend Sanders, he gives them that defendant that they're, I'm sorry, he gives them that plan that they're, that they're looking for. And he tells them to talk to D. So Cohen and Kine Roy, they visit D at her house to see if she would be their lead plaintiff. Um, Cohen states that what has happened to her and the other people in her community is wrong and that the ACLU wants to make sure that it doesn't happen again. The plan is to sue the DA, the drug task force, the county, and the police involved in the raids. Now, mom, she's not feeling this. She's like, you must be on drugs if you think my daughter is going to sue Calvin Beckett. Like we said earlier, she's of the mindset that things are the way they are. They're not going to change. And we saw this during the jail visit when she suggested to Dee that she just take the plea. Mm-hmm. Dee, you know, she's overwhelmed. She's really not sh- sure what she wants to do. And she steps out and her mom's follows. Since when did you start smoking? Since I spent 21 days in jail. You can't believe Reverend Sanders sent them around here to my got Sue Beckett. You can't be Beckett. I would need to. 
He wants to put me in prison for 16 years. Beckett don't care nothing about you. You take the plea, he will leave you alone. And you stay to yourself. He ain't gonna bother you never again. Why should I have to keep to myself? I did not do anything. Dad, it ain't always about you. You got kids to take care of. Mama, these police been raiding this project since I was a kid. Now I'm starting on my kids. Look at Sharice in there. Scared of half to death. You think it's gonna stop because I plead guilty? Excuse me. Why is that any of your business? After what they done to me, Mama, they made it my business. Dee, Dee, wait a minute. No, Mama. I want to help. Great. May I? Please. Ms. Roberts, I know Calvin Beckett. I know him personally. And filing this suit against him, it may make him change his plans. But more than likely, he's going to come after you even harder. He may come after you very hard. You need to remember that you still have criminal charges pending against you. He's right. <laughs> Yeah. He ain't gonna leave me alone unless I plead guilty. I ain't doing it. So, what exactly do you need me to do? We don't know her intent before she steps out, but after the conversation that she did have with her mom, it's clear what she wants to do. She she wants to fight. So she goes back in and she tells them that She'll do whatever she can to help. Yeah, those are really high stakes, right? So it's going to take somebody who has such crazy strong intestinal fortitude to kind of put up with, you know, someone like Beckett. Because like they said, he's kind of like a king in that town. So, you know, if D is the person to kind of do it, then more power to her. Because like I said, I don't know if I could. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Felony it is. You know, but that's just me. Think, you know, I feel like God doesn't give us more than we can handle. So, but um, moving on. We're with um, Sam Conroy. He's back at Baylor, Texas University with um, Joe Fisher. Yes, he's with Joe Fisher. And we kind of learn a little bit about Conroy's history and why he is considering taking this case. And we are given a really, really crazy story about him growing up back in, where did he grow? He, he grew up in uh, Louisiana. He was in high school and he used to work at the town pool. And this is kind of when they started to sort of uh, integrate the town pool. And there were two black, you know, blacks. He just said blacks. I don't know if they were middle women. There were two blacks in the pool and there was one guy, black guy who was taking a shower. And he was in the, in the locker room sort of mopping up. And that's when one of the guys told him to get the hell out of there. And he's like, uh, why? I have to clean. I have to mop up. I'm doing my job. And at some point, he eventually relented and he left. And as he was leaving, there were a whole bunch of men who were coming into the shower and they were carrying these metal rods and sticks and pipes. And so basically, these men beat this Black man to death just because he wanted to swim. So anyway, so um, Conroy, basically, at when he was interviewed by the FBI, 
he lied and told him that he didn't see anything. So I think that that's something that kind of ate away at him. And he felt like he had to kind of make good on that. So that's why he agreed to take on this racial discrimination case to kind of right a wrong that he was a part of. And even in a a small way, he was a part of it. So, you know. So now we're with, we're back with our main character, D. You know, we see her, she is basically pounding the pavement, trying to find a job. She's willing to do anything and everything she does. She's going from restaurant to furniture store to store. It doesn't matter. She's doing whatever she has to do. And since she has this felony on her record, it's really, really, really hampering her chances of finding legitimate work. And that's another thing. Like people come out of prison and you tell them, hey, go back to, you know, live, you know, a regular life as an upstanding citizen and you have this strike against you because nobody wants to hire someone with a record or very few people do rather. You know, they look down on that. So now she's a felon and she... she she's can't. not a felon yet. She hasn't been convicted of anything. Yeah, you're right. She, she, but she, she still has like an arrest on her record. So when they do right. run a criminal check, it's going to say that, hey, she was distributing narcotics in a school zone. That looks really bad. <laughs> so... She actually, she goes to like a restaurant. She's like turned down. She's even saying that she's willing to work minimum wage. She goes to another place and this black guy, he's like, look, man, I said I don't have a job. Stop asking me. (laughs) And she goes, she finally goes to this third place. It seems like a family style, you know, like like a, maybe a Mexican restaurant. And she basically, they see the, you know, he sees like the earnestness in her. You mean, so, mean the desperation? I was trying to use a nice word, but you know, it's both. Like he sees like that she really needs this. So he gives the, her the opportunity and she actually finally finds a job. Yeah. So now the, the Melody Raid trial begins. Um, Beckett realizes his witness or informant may damage the case because he says that he, <laughs> he taste tested the drugs. Did you hear him say that? Mm-hmm. And Beckett has this look on his face like, yo, did you just say that? Anyway, the defense attorney cross-examines the witness and asks if he's ever been in a mental institution. He replies yes. And the defense attorney, he's doing his job. He asks him who put him there. It turns out that Beckett is the one who put him there. The defense attorney asks if he was afraid of Mr. Beckett. And if he was afraid of Mr. Beckett, would send him back. So Beckett immediately calls for a recess because he see he sees how damaging the facts of this case are. And he gives Mr. Porter a look. I don't know if it's to say you did a good job or you screwed up. I was confused. But nonetheless, on his way out, he sees Conroy. He says hello. He sees... David Cohen, he doesn't know him, so he introduces himself. But he sees Hill. We know that we that he sees Byron Hill, David Cohen's associate, but he doesn't even acknowledge him. So that goes to show mm-hmm. how much he doesn't like black people. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mm-hmm. acknowledge him. I mean, it doesn't. It shows, but doesn't show at the same time. We're not all the way, you know. Because did he acknowledge? Oh, he did acknowledge Conor, uh, Cohen. He did. He did. You're right. At this point. Now, this is where I started to, like, have my feelings, my not-so-nice feelings about Alma. Mm. She she actually leaves the girls with Darnell. Like, 
bruh, what are you doing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? It's like, like I get it, but I don't get it. Like she says in the movie, that is their father. I don't care. But I then, care. yeah, she needs to realize the the woman that he is with. Not that just that. That's not a safe not environment. Not just that. We learned that he was abusive to her, to his to, to D. You know, I wouldn't be so gung ho to leave. You know, if I had a daughter, to leave her children with a man who used to beat her. Not only that, but with Claudia, who is a child molester. I mean, let's not mince words here, you know? And so Dee comes to try and get her daughter. And instead of just handing her kids to her, Claudia is on the other side of the door uh, taunting her. Like, she's like, oh, I got Laquatia in my arms. I'm holding her real tight. What the heck? This was like some bizarre, like mind game. It was really, really, you know, it was a strange, strange things to, to, to witness. And, you know, Dee was not having it. You know, she was doing whatever she had to do. She was trying to kick the door in. Then she was, uh, that's when she basically uh, tries to kick kick his car. That, that caught his attention, right? To heck not at first. Her. She had to kick it several times. Yeah. And end up ruining it with paint. Yeah, she spilled paint. She was telling him, look, I want my kids. Like, he was refusing to give her the children back. But, you know, at this point, I, I I was Team D. I'm Team D all the way. I'm sorry. I don't care. You do what you have to do to protect your children. And her mother was out of pocket for what she did. She was out of pocket. And had that been me, my mother would never have access to my children ever again. Because, I'm sorry, that was a trust that was broken all the way around. Yeah, the cops come at this point. And D gets arrested, which is it's not a good look for her case. I mean, you're trying to fight the system and you're trying, you know, you're the lead defendant because you're you're the cleanest, I guess you could say, defendant. And you're sitting, you're getting arrested for for like assaulting or for vandalized. Was it vandal vandalism? Mm -hmm. But Cohen gets her out of jail and. Alma worked out a deal with the uh, Darnell. I mean, it's the least she could do. I mean, she's leaving her, her. She's she's the root of this, you know, the cause of this situation. But Darnell agreed not to pay, uh, press charges if, uh, you know, Alma agreed to pay for the damages. So that's how she was able to resolve that situation. Right. Um, and now... And so Cohen, yeah, Cohen is basically, he's, he's scolding her. He's telling her, look, I need you to stay out of trouble. You know, we have the resources for one major case and I chose you. You were chosen. Like, don't make this difficult. Don't make this hard because the stakes of this situation are so high. What we can accomplish, could it could change the lives of so many people, past, present, and future. So don't screw up again. That's basically what he's telling her. So now they're at um, David Higgins. You know, he meets with Sam Conroy and they're at a, like a diner, right? They ask Dee if she had listened to the tape. You know, this tape of this so-called drug bust. And she's basically saying that she heard crackling, she heard men arguing, but there was no sound of any woman present on that tape at all. And that's when they, you know, they kind of mentioned Cohen and Conway, they're talking, they're mentioning that this tape, this alleged tape that exposes these alleged, you know, drug interactions or drug dealings, it's gone missing. Even the arrest warrant went missing. Even the copy that the DA is supposed to have went missing. And so if you were unsure before where David Higgins stood, you now know. Yeah, he was he's so flippant. For, yeah, he's not right. for D. Roberts. Right. 
He's for like anything that's going to advance his own self-interest. He's like completely dismissive about it. And, you know, they're telling him, look, basically you're guilty at at the very least of criminal destruction. Was it a criminal obstruction of justice? Yes, there you go. Or gross dereliction of duties. But he's not trying to hear it. He doesn't care. He's picked his team in this fight and it's Beckett and the hell with, with anybody else who stands in his way, unfortunately. That's that's how this thing is. It's kind of like you got to pick a side. Right. He gives uh, D some free advice. Take the plea. At this point, D's at home and she gets a visit from, you know, Child Protective Services because Daryl... I think I called him Darnell earlier. Oops, that's okay. Daryl, he basically accused her of negligence and abuse. Like, this can't be a healthy environment. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Meanwhile, you're living with an accused child molester. Why is nobody... Could you imagine if a mom was living with a guy who was an accused child molester and people knew that? I don't understand how people are letting this... Like, they're not giving this more attention. Like, it's really baffling to me. And it's not like he really wants the kids because in the beginning of the film, when he first hit the kids and then dropped them off, he tells Ama, I'll call you when I want them back. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, let's set up a day when I can uh, visit them when they can come over. No, I'll call you when I want them back. When I'm in the mood, you know what I mean? So him just calling child services to take the kids away from D is just very, very petty, very mm-hmm. selfish. Mm-hmm. So we're in February now, and due to Mr. Porter's, you know, his unreliable testimony, the DA was forced to drop the charges against everyone in the sweep. And anyone who pled guilty under duress, such as Gladys, nothing changes for them. You know, they're still considered felons. So I was wondering if, you know, he was at all motivated, you know, by the case. Uh, yeah, I thought that too. And that's really unfortunate, like the whole situation with Gladys. I'm like, these people play guilty. You know, this was basically under duress and you can't do anything for them. You're just going to have them labeled as felons forever. Like, where's the justice in that? D is at, she's at her restaurant and Beckett comes in and he asks for Cisco. Cisco is her boss. We see him talking to Cisco and that scene kind of, ends there. We don't see anything. We don't learn anything about that. But later we learn that basically, because at the at, after his conversation with Beckett, he basically tells D that he needs to talk to her. It's not until later on that we learn that she basically was fired. So he is employing his intimidation tactics. You know, he is, you know, putting pressure on, you know, individuals who could potentially help her. He's applying pressure and basically he wants D to drop the case and he's going to do whatever he can in his power to kind of screw her life up until she becomes so desperate that she just doesn't have any fight left in her. Right. And now Cohen, Conroy, and and Alma, they're all in D's home along with D discussing whether or not to continue with the lawsuit. Um, the charges against everyone has been dropped, so why continue, right? Mm-hmm. Becca's not going to change and the system's not going to change. These are, you know, the thoughts of her mom. But Cohen tells her that a lot is riding on this case, but ultimately the choice is hers. That's a lot of pressure to put on someone. And I remember asking, because I watched this with someone, and I remember asking, we asked each other, hey, 
what would you do? <laughs> we both agreed. We would have taken the play. At this point, like, I know it's still like, you know, the charges that have been dropped, it's, I'm not a felon. I can just live my life. I don't want to be harassed. I would have taken the plea. What about you? What do you think you would have done? I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know. I would like to think that I would have tried to remain strong and continue on with the case, not just for me, but for other people. I'm not sure what I would have done. So we see Gladys and Dee kind of encounters her. And this is nighttime and she is sleeping in her car. And she later, you know, she's talking to Dee about her situation. And we learn that because she pled guilty, she lost her house. And Dee kind of offers her, you know, she says she has some some space, which she doesn't. You have four kids and like, it looks like a single room, possibly two bedroom house. She doesn't have any extra space, but, you know, she's being kind and she offers her space, but Gladys kind of declines. And this is a moment where I just kind of, it just touched my heart and she just kind of breaks down. You know, she had the weight of the, it's like she had the weight of the world on her shoulders in that moment. She just kind of unburdened herself with, you know, everything that she's going through. And it was just such a heartbreaking moment, you know, watching her in the swings and just crying. And to know that this happened to an actual person, an actual person with children, it's just heartbreaking. Go ahead. Owen Conroy and Hill learned that their case has been assigned to C.W. Belmont. And that's a judge that Beckett has been in front of at least a dozen times. So Cohen says that the judge is conflicted and that they must move for a change of venue. But Conroy knows that Belmont getting the case is not an accident. He says that they must win the case before he even goes to trial. But we also have to remember another thing that's working against them is Judge Belmont hasn't ruled against the police in 15 years. Right. Whoa. So we're fast forwarding to June of that year. And we're at sort of like the pretrial depositions. Um, Mr. Porter recounts how he was accosted in jail by two men with guns. He says eventually he just stopped fighting. He took the beating. And the next day he was taken to Beckett's office. At that point, was just ready to to cooperate. Like he, he was defeated. Beckett told him that he could get 60 years. And I guess that that's because uh, Mr. Porter was in and out of the jails. And so... Beckin threatened him. He threatened his family. He said that, oh my gosh, he said that he was going to get the biggest dick son of a bitch that he could find and get him to screw him every night for his natural born life. And that just like put the fear of God in uh, Mr. Porter. And so Mm. Mr. Porter lets them know that Beckett's present makes him uncomfortable. He says that he was given a list of names by Beckett. This mm. is the 28 again that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So Conroy asks if Mr. Porter is the one who put D. Roberts' name down because of, of his relation to Claudio. But he says that he can't remember. But it just makes sense that that, that is the way it went down. Claudia wants D. gone. She wants her out of Daryl's life, out of the kid's life, you know, so she can do whatever it is that she wants to do. Mm-hmm. Um, he also said that all he needed was he was told that he needed five more names mm-hmm. to add to the list and they they didn't care who it was so mm-hmm. I could see him just throwing her name on the list which right. is horrible I mean I asked him hey who's are you telling the truth now or are you telling the truth then you know right also, yeah Mark Shelley crosses him I'm sorry Mark Shelby 
across as him. He makes him out to be not credible. Mm-hmm. He talks about his paranoid schizophrenia and, you know, he makes him seem or like a flip-flopper, basically. Like somebody who is telling multiple truths at multiple, or multiple lies, rather, at multiple points in time, you know, whatever is most advantageous to him in that moment. So he is someone who can't be trusted. He was very, very condescending. Ugh, I was not a fan. Shelby? Yes. Yeah. Not a fan. So Even when, later, when he starts oh, to... Whoa, yeah. Oh, whoa. We'll <laughs> get there. To Roberts. We'll yeah. get there. Disrespectful. We'll, yeah, on so many levels. Yeah, we'll get there. We're at the Federal District Court in Waco, Texas. And, oh yeah, he's he's opposing one of the police officers. And he asks them, did you hold a gun to Eddie Porter's head? You know, he asks them whether he thought Eddie Porter was mentally stable. And that's when the police officer basically says, more or less, he says, no, he wasn't. And he's like, well, if he wasn't mentally stable, why no, would you use him? Mm-hmm. As, as a criminal informant, to which there was no real answer. The um, ACLU attorneys, they were before Judge Belmont and they were uh, applying for a motion of uh, motion for a change of venue because presumably there was some bias that existed. And David Cohen point, pointed out to the judge that he that Beckett appeared before him 16 times. Uh, Belmont's like, I'm not trying to hear that. I don't care. Whatever. This is my courtroom. I run the show. Motion denied. So now we are at the custody hearing for or with um, D. Roberts and Daryl. This part makes me nervous. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. You already know that Beckett has a grudge, a vendetta against D because she's suing them. And now it's like he has her life in his hands. And so he eventually rules in favor of D keeping her kids. And that was actually a shock to me. So after that happened, I wondered if he ruled for her because of the pending lawsuit against him. I wonder if that had anything to do with it. I just want to briefly interject and say that, you know, in real life, it didn't occur this way. He he happened to be in the courtroom, but David Beckett's character, his all the names, by the way, in this film were changed. I'm not sure why. I'm assuming that was for some sort of legality or for some legal reasons. But um, even the name of the town was a completely different town. But the actual person who uh, Beckett represents, John Paschal, um, he uh, he was in the courtroom at the time, but he did not oversee the the hearing. I don't even think that that would be appropriate or illegal, but they just wanted to, I, guess, I think that part was in there for dramatic license. Um, outside the courtroom, he asks Cohen if he thinks the lawsuit will help. He starts to ramble some things, but then he just comes clean. He says, honestly, he doesn't know, but he he hopes it will. We kind of, I want to just jump back a little bit because there was something that we really, we missed that I thought was somewhat important. And it was a scene in the pretrial depositions with uh, Mr. Arnold. He worked on the combined drug task force and they basically presented him with a list of all the names, you know, and they asked him to identify each person's race. And he was just basically like black, 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 black,
black, black, black, black, black, black, black, black. I don't know, black, black, black. I was like, oh my god, I don't. So that was just basically to really demonstrate the the internal, you know, bias. yes, the the inherent bias in their practices. I just wanted to uh, point that out before we moved on. So that was my bad. Mm. So we're with Mr. Shelby is... Just call him Shelby. Don't call deposing. him Mr. Sorry. Shelby. Fat Shelby? No. <laughs> Big <Sloppy> Shelby. Shelby? <laughs> Sloppy Shelby is deposing her. At this point, D kind of confirms that she was fired. You know, because he's asking whether she has a job. And this is basically the first where we're really learning of it. So she has, he's basically saying, you know, she has no source of income. So like, this is some sort of, he's trying to imply that this is some sort of money grab for her, right? He's saying that she was first arrested. Her first arrest was for theft. Her second arrest was for criminal mischief. We later learned that, you know, through Dee's impassioned speech, that her theft was the result of her stealing food for her children. Oh, that's so sad. And we know that the criminal mischief was due to the, you know, was justifiable in my opinion. That was due to her throwing the paint on Daryl's car. We also learned that she has four children by three different fathers. And what does he say to her, Alex? He said, um, good Lord, how many women, how many men did you sleep with? You said about that part? That's not how he phrased it. He said, how many different men have you had sex with in the past eight years, huh? What? Mm-mm-mm. Disrespectful. How? How disrespectful, how inappropriate, how disgraceful. Like, I I was just, I was, like, my jaw was, like, I I was stunned. I know. It had nothing to do with the case. He was just trying to humiliate her. He was humiliating her and trying to discredit her, Mm -hmm. make her seem like somebody who was just, like, like, make her seem like she was trash. Like, she was unworthy. He's basically saying, basically, you're, you've been arrested. You know, her, like we learned that the other two fathers of her children are in prison for drug-related offenses for selling crack cocaine. And he's basically saying, look, you've been arrested a bunch of times. What makes this so different? You're basically a, a troublemaker. We also learn here later that Belmont says that Beckett only has to answer the, um, the questions or has to be deposed only for three, three hours. Mm-hmm. Because anything more would be a waste of his time. Mm-hmm. Excuse me? Because everybody's what? time is not precious? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. It shows what? Just just shows how, one, he may rule and how little he thinks of the case. How little he thinks of the defendants. Right, like, yeah. I see why they like, okay, we got to put this, we got to get, we got to put this to bed before we get to trial because it's a lost case. It's a lost cause. So we're at the, it's kind of a little you know, group meeting, a legal eagle session. They're trying to sort of figure out, you know, how the other side is going to come at them. That's when Conroy asks Hill what he would do if he were Beckett. And, you know, Hill is basically breaking it down. He says, I I would destroy Porter's credibility, which is not hard to do because he's the only source of information as to what went on. He's saying that the police relying on him was a mistake, but, but an honest one. Like, basically, he's, He's playing the devil's advocate. Like, what could the other side argue? He's saying that the fact that all the tar- all the arresting officers were white and all the offenders were black is just a coincidence. It's the result of the shows that they, the drugs that they chose to go after because mm-hmm. you know black uh, people do crack cocaine. Yeah, a lot more. Um, and then he says he's going to go after D. 
he's going to basically paint her as a desperate crack mother looking for her payday. Right. Yeah. At the expense of hardworking public servants. Police make mistakes. They're human beings. And After he his also monologue. says that. Okay, yeah, ahead. he also says that Belmont wouldn't look too kindly on them for going after, you know, police officers because, you know, I guess he he views them in high esteem. So that's not a, a tactic that they should take. And he asked the question, how do you prove racist intent? No, wait. After his monologue, Conroy says that the best plan is not to criticize the cops and that Beckett was molded by racist intent. So then D asks, well, how do you prove racist intent? Mm-hmm. And Cohen says that you have to look at a person's history, their co-workers, family, the people that they surround themselves around. Mm-hmm. And that gives D an idea. Um, mm-hmm. She suggests to interview his ex-wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. And so we see that they go to the house preparing the interview. At least for at least at this moment, we just know that the ex-wife is going to be interviewed. We don't find out till later that the daughter is also going to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. And um, we I think saw you know the daughter. Yeah. Because of the daughter's interview. We saw her name was Julie, by the way. We saw her right. very early in the scene uh, in the mm-hmm. in the, the film. Diner. Yes, she was one of these sort of long-standing, like repeat customers. So that's kind of how she knew Julie, and she knew how you know to basically reach out to her. Mm-hmm. So it it's late at night now. Dee's helping Sharice with her homework, and Daryl starts banging on the door. Daryl, go home. He opened the door. Come on. I don't talk to you. Stop knocking on my door. Say that, Sharice. Hey. You drunk. You came to get the girls. They need their father, too. Okay, you heard what the man said. They need to be with their mother. Mm-mm. Go home. Good night. Right, well, come on, now listen to me. Look, think about it. Hear me out. If we got back together, then they can have us both. Yeah. Mm. No, no we've been through this be already. Like Daryl, no. Don't be like that. Daryl, go home. D opens it, kind of, the chain is still on though, but she does not latch it. And Daryl is drunk as a skunk. And he, he's telling her he wants the girls and D's like, no, it's night, bruh, go home. And that's when he tries to sweet talk her because he's he telling her that he wants to get back with her. And D's like, it's a no for me, dog. And that, at this point, Daryl, he does not take kindly to this rejection and he tries to break into the house. D, she phones the police. Tries to, he does. No, he tries at this point. She's calling the police. 
And then he oh, gains entry okay. into the house. That's when Daryl starts to kind of scoop up these girls like, look, I'm taking mm-hmm. my kids. And it's like a big, loud, chaotic mess. You know, and Dee tries to prevent him from taking the girls. And he basically knocks her to the ground. Mm-hmm. And then Mama Roberts comes out with a bat, threatening to swing if he don't put the girls down. See, this is why I like her again. You see? <laughs> you see how I'm just going back and forth? She, he's like, look, he's looking at her like, what are you going to do, a woman? She's like, she didn't stand down. She did not stand down. That's right. That's right. That's right. And the police come. And then he starts taunting her, saying, you know, Beck is not going to charge me. Mm. You know, Beck is not going to charge me. Mm. So he already knows that Beck has it out for her. And, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm sure everybody in that town knows that she's wearing the scarlet, you know, the scarlet letter, isn't she? He probably mm. has something to do with her name being put on the list anyway. I wouldn't be surprised. So it's the next day and Dave and Byron come to pick up Dee. She's t- telling me she's had a rough night. And that's when she's like, OK, she has another idea. She has another idea. So we're at De- De- uh, at Beckett's deposition. And next up is Blickety Black Byron Hall. That's what I wrote. And her idea is to have him conduct the deposition because you know how Beckett feels about Black people. He does not care for them. He does not want to have to answer to someone who is Black. Like he feels like they are beneath him. So when you put him, Byron sort of is in a position of power, more or less. And for him to have to, like, respond to this man's questions? To the Black man's question. That's not something he is going to take too kindly to. So, you know, and, uh, you know, he starts to ask his questions, whether it's regular practice to indict someone based on the word of a single informant. And, of course, it's a regular practice across Texas. That's what we learned, which is I still can't get over that law. Whether it's a practice to give informants a list of people that you want to find guilty. He also asks whether... They generally use uh, informants with a history of mental instability. He asked, why is your drug arrest record 85% Black people when half of Harmon County is Black? Mm-hmm. That, those are some, those numbers don't even add up, right? Those are disproportionate. Beckett's response is basically, it must be them doing all the drugs. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to tell him, 40 minutes left, boy. Mm. He called him a boy? Mm-hmm. Oh, Byron did not like that. That is so ins. Oh, that's so insensitive. Demeaning. So, yeah. That's when he calls him Calvin. He's like, "You don't mind if mm-hmm. I call you that?" <laughs> he's like, and he calls him out. He's basically like, "You seem to have a problem with us black people." And we're not going to use these words, okay, Alex? So um, we're going to keep it a little. Let you know. He basically says that. Have you ever called black people the N word? Um, Calvin doesn't respond. Yeah, he he stalls. He mm-hmm. takes a sip of sip his of water. water. <laughs> That's when you know somebody you know, does it, you know they're nervous. They start taking a sip of water. That's to buy them some time. You know, he's like, I, I got to remind you, you're under oath. You have an obligation to respond. And his response is, I don't remember. How do you not remember if you call someone that? I can tell you, I don't call people that. I'm black. He's like, what is your relationship like with your ex-wife? He's like, non-existent. And that's when he... Pulls out the big guns, not literally, but he plays a tape of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is the ex-wife, right? Mm-hmm. And she starts to talk about his relationship or lack thereof with Black people. He, well, Elizabeth says that he doesn't like Black people. He doesn't even like the little ones. And whenever they would come into his yard, he would chase them out. She even said that Calvin thought that people wanted convictions 
and the feds want convictions and who better to convict than the lazy N-word. Okay. Thank you. We're going to keep it clean. I heard you. Uh, okay. Right, right, okay. So, lazy A N-words. All right, all right. So, um, then we see an interview with Julie uh, Peckett. That's his 22-year-old daughter. And she basically, she's a little bit more confident in her interview than Elizabeth because Elizabeth seemed like a broken down woman, didn't she? Mm-hmm. She's saying that... Um, he and Jerry, Jerry was the guy who we saw earlier, uh, Jerry Arnold. Who was, who was like black, black, blackity, black, black, black. That's Jerry Arnold. They would sit around, drink, and say that the only way to save the town is to blow up Arlington Springs. And Arlington Springs is the complex that mm-hmm. the raid took place in, that D lives in. And to make the N-word cockroaches burn and... And when he found out that she was dating a black man, oh, he about lost his mind. He chased her down and beat her with a belt. Isn't it funny? That's how it often plays out. Mm. It is. Everything that you you hate the most, that you try to push on others, that you portray to others, those people then turn around and do what it is that you don't like or participate in what it is that you don't like. So your daughter knows that you don't like black people. And she... I don't know if I want to call it a rebellion, but she's she's drawn to them, mm. you know, because of your hatred. Your or hatred she, is what has drawn drawn her to them. Or she's just a twenty two year old girl who's just living in the two thousands and just doesn't care. That that's, that's not a big deal to her, you know. It's True, a generational but times when racism racism is is prevalent, it's taught, it's inherited. It just gets passed down to the next generation, you know. You don't inherit racism. You taught racism. That's, he jumps up after, like, after Julie's, like, you know, he's watching his testimony. He just can't take it anymore. He jumps up. He throws his pitcher of water off the table. And he, like, he turns off the videotape. And that's it's when like kind he's of, embarrassed. That's when he's embarrassed. He's upset. Like, you use my, my family against me kind of thing. And Byron kind of really goes in for the kill. He's like, do you ever call black people the N-word? It's like, and he's like, of course I call them the N-word, you uppity piece of, you know, fill in the blank. And home run for the uh, for the plaintiffs because he pretty much basically gave them everything that they wanted at this point. You know, he basically pulled off his mask in that moment and showed what a racist piece of trash he really is. He exposed himself. Now we're in April of 2002. We're at the federal district court and they are, I guess, the attorneys are kind of exiting the court. And that's when we found out that Beckett more or less, you know, ordered his attorneys to settle because he didn't want the, that tape to be played in court. And they agreed to disband the ta- drug task force and each of the accused would be, you know, issued a small settlement. And people like Gladys, who pled guilty, no longer had to, would be considered felons and they can move back to Arlington Springs. And their arrest records would also be expunged. Yay. The one <laughs> that was a yay, but the one unfortunate thing is that the judge insisted that Beckett's future be left up to the voters. You know, that's really unfortunate because he, Paschal, who was play, uh, who um, who represents uh, Beckett, Paschal in real life, he basically continued to be like the attorney. Uh, I mean, sorry, the district attorney for several, several more years after that. He was not afforded out of office. It wasn't until 2016 when Pastro basically had to surrender his law license and plead guilty to a felony 
because he was charged for misusing money that belonged to an estate that he served as an executor. He ended up spending 30 days in jail. He was issued 10 years of probation and a $1,000 fine. So basically what got him caught or what ended his reign had nothing to do with his discriminatory practices, which I don't really know how I feel about that. That's kind of like Capone who got convicted of a tax evasion and that's how they got him kind of sort of thing. I mean, I guess you could say if they got him, they got him, but it's just the fact that he got to basically continue to reign for many, many years after this is really disheartening to me. I agree. The people of Harmon County did not care. Did they know? I would say that they did. It was a, it, a case against the DA. I'm sure that made TV news. I'm sure but that they, made the papers. I'm sure, but did they- I'm sure much? his opponents brought that up. I'm sure they know. They knew what? They knew that there was an accusation by a potential like crackhead woman. They don't, they, you know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't know D. I would again. I would argue that they did because when you run for re-election, your opponent digs up dirt against you. They bring it to light, and I'm sure it hit the news, hit the papers. People knew. I would put money on that. I don't know, but um. So we see Conroy. This is the end towards the end of the movie. Conroy is going home. And then there's a cop car sort of waiting outside. And the police officer is just kind of watching him. And it's like, you know, they're still kind of employing these intimidation tactics. Basically saying, look, we're watching you. Traitor. Mm-hmm. So now we're at church. And Reverend Sanders pretty much acknowledges what Dee did for the greater good. How she stood her ground. How she fought against an unjust system. How she did not, you know, cave when so many other people would and, you know, how appreciative, you know, the community is for what she did because what she did was actually a sacrifice and it could have gone a completely different way. So we learn, you know, about the fates of everybody involved. David, Cohen, Byron Hill, they are still practicing civil liberties for disenfranchised. Sam Conroy is still practicing law. And the biggest thing is that the Texas law allowing the word of a single informant to be sufficient for indictment was changed, which was Mm -hmm. very, very important. So, you know, I don't know. Did you have any takeaways from this movie? I mean, like I said, it was a really good movie and it did shed some light on a lot of the injustices that were going on. The whole thing with plea bargains being pushed and people, well, I already knew that there are some people that would just plead guilty, even if they were innocent. But the fact that plea bargains were pushed just to get a conviction, just so you can receive federal monies, it was just, it was disgusting. I didn't know the intricacies of that. And so, like I said, this movie was very enlightening. I agree with everything you said. I just want to add that one takeaway I had from, you know, coming away from this film was, and it's going to sound so incredibly corny and cheesy, but it's that one person can make a difference. Mm. Everything was completely against this woman. Everything should have told her just to to just take the easy way out. Yeah. And she didn't. And that is something that should be commended. That is something to be applauded. Like when you see something is wrong, like you can be that person that shapes the future because that's essentially what she did for, for the people in her town. And it's unfortunate that, you know, because I read that basically at, after that, she was unable to find work. They were harassing her. She had to move to Houston. And 
You know what I mean? When she comes back to visit, Hearn, Hearn is actually the town, the real town, the, the name of the town. Um, Melody was a fictional name. Uh, but when she comes back to visit, she does it in secret because, you know, there's still some sort of residual resentment for towards her for what she did. But that being said, I just applaud her for what she did. Like, I, I, I sincerely do, because I, I kept trying to put myself in that situation. And it's hard to do that because if you're not going through something, you really don't know what you would do. But I found it oh, difficult to believe that I would be as strong as she was. Mm-hmm. So especially if I have four children. So more power to her. It wasn't like I couldn't find a lot of information on Regina Kelly, but I do know that she um she works as more or less like a motivational speaker. She conducts trainings for defense attorneys to show them how to connect on a better level with minorities. So she does a lot of sort of work with the community now. Um, she's she works with the school board, city council officials. She also received a Roger Baldwin Medal of Liberty mm-hmm. from the ACLU. She serves on the board of directors of the National League Legal Aid and Defender Association and also co-chairs the client council. And she works as a staff for Lone Star Legal Aid of Texas. I know she goes around and she, you know, does, you know, speeches and she talks to various different organizations and schools and, you know, about her experience, you know. So, you know, I just, I think she's an amazing woman. And I'm glad they told her story. I wish it was a little bit more well-known, you know, so... But that's pretty much it. That's what I have. Um, the sources that we used for this were wikipedia.com, essence.com, nlada.org, pbs.org. So thank you so much for joining us. If you want to reach out, you can reach out to us on blackgirlstalkpodcast at gmail.com, blackgirlstalkpodcast on Instagram, and blackgirlspod on Twitter. So uh, thank you so much for joining us, guys. And uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Say bye, Alex. Bye, Alex. There's a lot of concerned parents and citizens in the neighborhood who are kind of um, expressing their concerns and telling their individual stories or their, you know, stories of, you know, their loved ones or their sons or, you know, people in their families. Lord. It's Friday night.